Rental income, that is a fun topic. Well, it is one of those things that's super confusing for a lot of people and there's always questions about it. In fact, multiple times every single day. Of course, we had to have an episode about rental income, how to qualify, how does it work, how do you use it, does it allow you to qualify for more, which lenders should you go with, and so much more. There's tons to know about this information. Of course, Derek and I decided to hop on today to run the gamut of everything you need to know about rental income. Before we get to that, hey, we just want to take a quick second to say thank you for all of you amazing people who have taken time out of your day to leave us a five-star review on iTunes or Spotify. Man, it means so much to read these reviews. So if you haven't done so, if this impacted you, if our podcast has helped you in any way, shape, or form, whether you're in the real estate industry or otherwise, please, please, please do share this with a friend or leave us a review. Today's review comes from Jerome Real Estate. He said, this podcast has been a phenomenal resource to me starting out in real estate. I have learned more in one day from this podcast than months trying to figure it out alone. Would definitely recommend this to anyone and anyone, whether or not you are in the field of the real estate industry. Thank you so much, Jerome. Always appreciate you having you on. Of course, our goal with the podcast here is to help educate you folks on everything real estate, investment, and lending related. And I definitely want to ask you, listening right now, uh, before you get into it, if you have a moment or two, send us a message to our feedback channels on Instagram at Thrive at Thrive Mortgage Co. or at the YBR Remo Show. And let us know what you'd like to hear more about or more of when you're listening. We go based on user feedback and we try our very best to, of course, uh, share information that's relevant in today's market. Do you want more topical information? Do you want us to go deeper into qualification? More guests, more rentals, more investments, or something else? Please let us know because we'd love to hear more. Thank you so much for listening. Share this with a friend. If you want to find out more about working with us at Thrive Mortgage Co., you know where to find us on Instagram. We would love to chat with you. Anyways, enough about that. Enjoy the episode. We'll see you on the other side. What's up, guys? You are listening to the YBR Remo Show, where we talk all things Vancouver real estate and mortgages, take boring topics and make them interesting. Make sure to stay tuned to listen to everything you need to know how to put cash back in your pocket, create wealth in real estate and simplify the complicated. It's time to talk about rental income when it comes to your mortgage and lending. So you got Derek Williamson and myself, Alex McFadden here today to talk a little bit about rental income as it pertains to mortgage lending. Now, I want to be really clear on this. There is a lot to know about all this. So there's no way in heck we could cover this in 30 minutes, let alone like 10 hours. But this is going to definitely be helpful for you. So if you want to buy a property that has a rental suite, if you want to buy a second home and move into it, if you want to buy three properties... Uh, you're going to want to listen to this. So stay tuned. Um, and like I said before, already in the intro, guys, like let us know if there's anything else that you want to learn about this or if it's something that you're interested in. So Derek, let's get into it, man. Let's talk about this. It's been a while. Yeah. Rental income is a massive tool. We live in a very, very expensive market, like dramatically expensive. Um, and it can be unrealistic for some people. And rental income is an incredible tool not only to help you with your financial situation and budgeting because it's helping you, you know, cover cover a portion of your mortgage, um, but from a qualification aspect in a mortgage application, it can absolutely be a game changer. It can boost qualification to a level that you might not actually think is realistic. So um, we're going to dig into the do's, the don'ts, uh, some tips, some things to keep in mind, uh, and you should uh, leave this episode uh, probably more confused than you are now ah. about rental income. <laughs> 
Hey, I, I want to start off and just talk about some of the misnomers that people bring up all the time. Hey, can I use 100% of the income and just cover the debt? Doesn't that doesn't that make make it so I don't have to pay for it? Uh, what if I have uh, my brother or sister renting a room in my house? Isn't doesn't that work? You know, I get a lot of these different types of questions here, guys. And this is again another reason that we're doing that. So yeah, like get right into it. I mean, there's no there's not really one specific way that rental income is qualified. I suppose if you're working with one bank or one institution, which of course you would never do. Uh, but again, if you're working with one institution, they have like a, a guideline or a set of policies, and all these different parameters change how they look at rental income for qualification. Um, so we're going to try to, again, talk a little bit about each one. But just remember, you don't need to know all this. The goal is to just set you up with those guidelines from that standpoint and really help you um, you know, understand that. Well, I mean, I just want to start off really quickly and talk a little bit about claiming claiming rental income versus not rental income and, and just the idea of it. Derek, you, you hit it right off the top. We live in, in, in the lower mainland in Vancouver, in BC in general, like we live in one of the most expensive areas of the world when it comes to real estate. And uh, for that reason, a lot of people are are needing rental income to help them qualify, but more importantly, the offsets. And they're also interested in investing into real estate uh, for obvious reasons, the advantages of having it. So the idea of claiming the rental income as part of your taxable income, you know, for someone like you or I, I mean, I think so, is a pretty obvious consideration. You're making money off it. You pay tax on it. We hate it, but you have to do it. There's obviously different ways to reduce that taxable income. But maybe like just take a second to touch on the importance, Derek, of why we recommend you claim your income and not evade taxes. Well, I think the just common theme here is like if you're self-employed or you're a server and you get tips and they're cash and you don't claim them and you go to apply for a mortgage, like that's not being considered, right? Same thing with rental income. If you're not paying tax and you're not claiming that income, banks don't want to use it in your mortgage application. So you could have a rental property that cash flows and you've had it for 10 years, but you've never claimed a dime. When it comes time for your application, the bank's going to go, okay, great. Show me your tax returns. I got the rental agreement. I got the bank statements. I can see it's all happening. Show me your tax returns to prove that you're actually paying tax on this. Doesn't show up. They're going to say, no, we're not using that rental income. Oh, now we have a huge liability from that rental property. We have a mortgage and property taxes and strata fees and no income to cover that. And it's going to absolutely crush whatever you're trying to do uh, in that specific mortgage application. So just think of it like household income, employment income, like you got to pay tax on this stuff. And like Alex mentioned, it's not all bad. It's usually very minimal. Uh, you can write off interest on your mortgage. You can write off taxes. You can write off marketing for tenants. There's so many different ways you can bring that taxable income down. It's pennies. Well, I shouldn't say pennies, dollars <laughs> at the end of the day that you're going to pay, but it's worth it, right? Um, yeah. We have this conversation all the time with people who are self-employed. They claim no income, then they can't get a mortgage or they can't get the mortgage that they wanted. So um, bite the bullet and just do it properly. It'll benefit you uh, on the next one. The reason that we're bringing this up right off the bat is because we're talking a little bit about rental offsets, add back like how it all works. And it's important to recognize that um, when you do not claim your rental income, it, it puts you at a disadvantage from a lending perspective uh, for a variety of reasons. One, you're going to cut down the lenders that are going to be available to you by like 80%, maybe 90%, to be honest with you now. And, and we're seeing more and more and more lenders say, hey, 
we want we want to ensure that you have this rental income claimed when in the past they would just use a lease agreement or they would just use deposits and things of that nature. We're getting it more and more and more where they are wanting to see that you've filed it. Now, of course, if you didn't own your property for a year, we can obviously show that and prove that. So that's relatively straightforward. Or if you just rented out, we can explain that too. Uh, but yeah, so for, for rental income qualification, I think the point here at the end of the day is claim your taxes, claim that you're you're making your money and that's going to help you qualify for more with residential lenders. Okay, I think what we're gonna do is we're gonna bite off a chunk of one of the biggest parts of this, or we're gonna leave some of the juicy stuff to the end, of course, but we're gonna bite off a big, big chunk of this right off the bat. And what I'm talking about right now is what the heck is an offset? My brain, that hurts. Okay, listen, as a residential, a borrower who's buying real estate and looking to do so with a, a conventional lender, like, listen, you don't really need to know every detail of offset. Your brain's gonna hurt if I get into too much detail, but I mean, you should probably know that there's different ways to qualify your income and an offset is often a very beneficial one. So Derek, take it away. Let's talk a little bit about the offset and I'll fill in some gaps here. An offset is a very realistic calculation of using that rental income. So if you have a property and your costs all in mortgage property taxes strata is $2,000 a month, right? Uh, maybe you're bringing in 2,500 bucks a month rental income. So the way that the offset works is every single lender has a different percentage of the rental income that they're going to use. Scotia Bank, as an example, uses 50% of the rental income. So your 2,500 bucks a month is now chomped down to 1,250, and your costs are 2,000, right? So there's a liability there. But the way the offset works is they'll take that 1,250 bucks a month, which is half of your rent, and they put it towards the property costs. Right, so now the liability that you're looking at month over month turns into 750 bucks a month that you are carrying. An offset is essentially they're taking a percentage of the rental income and they're putting it towards the exact cost of that property. If in that situation, if you had a lender doing a hundred percent offset, which is very rare, no lenders do that currently, you would actually cover all costs and you would have some extra cash flow month over month, which is going to help you qualify for more. Right. So in the scenario of the Scotia 50% offset, uh, you are carrying a liability for sure. But there's more to that. There's programs where you can remove property taxes and strata fees. Um, so that's an offset. That is for sure the most aggressive way for a lender to use rental income because it's actually removing costs from the property. Uh, sometimes it leaves you with a liability. Sometimes there's enough there to cover all the costs completely and wash that property out. Really well explained. So basically, again, just to bring it, I'll, I'll circle back on that one more time, as Derek mentioned, uh, a lender that does this offset calculation takes a percentage of your rental income and it reduces the mortgage expense or the expense on that property, therefore meaning that you only have to make up the difference. So again, if you have uh, $2,400 of rent, uh, we have $1,200 of rental income, your mortgage is $1,200, then you don't have to cover any of the mortgage rent. Perhaps you just have to cover the taxes and strata fees and things of that nature. That's, so that's an ideal circumstance, unlikely because the mortgage payment is likely higher, but uh, an ideal circumstance and it can be highly beneficial. Now, um, you know, offset is not as common in the industry as it used to be. Uh, five, even five years ago, we used to see a lot more lenders that had offsets. Uh, certainly uh, credit unions, uh, uh, many of the, the, the monolines, which are not... The banks, so mortgage finance companies and uh, and other types of institutions used to do a lot more of these offsets, and and then with for reasons that we won't bother getting into today, and a variety of reasons they've changed that up to become less 
less uh, rental offset friendly. And they started moving towards a different tool. And again, I'm not going to blanket statement this. There are lenders that have these offset situations. They've used towards a blanket tool called an ad back followed by a calculator. So let's move on to the next step. What the heck is an ad back and how does that work when it comes to your actual rental income? Yeah. So an ad back is uh, they're quite literally taking that rental income of say 2000 bucks a month and they add it to your personal income. So if it's 2000 a month, that's $24,000 a year. If it's a hundred percent ad back and there are some letters that do hundred percent ad back, we're adding 24,000 to my gross salary of $70,000, right? Now that might seem awesome, but the way that mortgage qualification in general works is we can only use a portion of your household income to cover property costs and then overall costs, right? So, Yes, we've taken $24,000 and added it to Derek's income, but we can only use 39 to 44% of Derek's income to cover housing costs. So that 24,000 gets chomped down very, very quickly and actually doesn't make that big of an impact in the application. This all seems very conservative. Most people are like, well, my property covers costs. Why can't we just wash it out? You have to consider that lenders will never be 100% reliant on rental income that tenant could stop paying you tomorrow and they could be stuck in your property if you're in BC for a year before you get them out. So lenders have to account for these things and they will never be 100% reliant on rental income like you are in real life. That's just not realistic because our banks are conservative and they get more conservative year over year with regulation. Everything in there you said there was really, really key. Uh, and um, I'm not sure if you highlighted this to a high level, but just a reminder uh, or uh, something I just want to pull out from that is if we are doing this quote unquote add back, remember if it's a thousand dollars income, they're adding back a percentage of that perhaps 50%. So that's $500. And as Derek mentioned, because of debt ratios, they may only be using 39% of that or 44% of that. So that works out to say 25% of the total amount and that's getting added. And otherwise the rest of the debt is still considered a debt. So it works out against you in many ways, but it doesn't always work out against you. And this is where things get really funky. And this is where I typically find that we lose a lot of people. And don't worry, if you're listening to this, you're not expected to know all this. I think maybe it's just kind of bringing you onto our world and understanding that there's so many nuances. We're generalizing these terms. Every different institution has a different way to do it. Some of them might say, oh, you also have to show you know, $50,000 of cash in your accounts or net worth. And some others might have to say, oh, but you have to have rented that out for two years. Some might say something else, right? So there's a whole bunch of other nuances to this, but this is just to generalize, understand how this all works. So the other, the other one, and this is where things get all wacky all over again, and then we don't love it to go down this road, but you guys want to know. So we're going to get into it. Uh, spreadsheets, DCRs, what the are those? Nobody, <laughs> I don't even know where to start to explain that. So you are, you are the best at explaining and breaking these down, Derek. So give it your best shot at a DCR uh, worksheet. Yeah. The lenders that use the worksheets are, it's interesting because it can be a lot simpler. Um, but a worksheet is essentially a spreadsheet and we have to plug in mortgage payments, property taxes, there's vacancy allowances, um, strata fees, like all these costs that are realistic. Sometimes there's property management fees if it's out of province or out of town. Um, and we have to plug in property after property. So if someone has 10 properties, we're plugging in all these details and these spreadsheets will spit out an overall 
debt coverage ratio essentially and lenders want you to be above a certain percentage for them to actually be able to approve the application um, and it's not as easy as just plugging in 50% add back it doesn't give you that number so we actually physically have to go through the work of building this massive spreadsheet to figure out if the ratio is going to work for that specific lender uh, all these specific lenders have their own spreadsheets as well and sometimes some of them calculate a little bit differently um, but at the end of the day it's it's a way for a lender based on their own internal policies and regulation it's a way for them to essentially find comfort in a rental portfolio right because there are a lot of moving parts especially when you have three four five six properties there's different considerations on every single one so they try to blanket it and they try to just come up with an average across of them um to and yeah again like often if you're not meeting their dcr ratio you are not going to get an approval. Like there's very few exceptions on this kind of stuff. So it's just a, a convoluted way to figure out if that bank's gonna give you a mortgage. You know, really the big thing to know about that is that's why you hire a professional who does this stuff for a living, who understands how to look at these worksheets, who understands the different little nuances behind that. Um, you know, speaking to that point, I, I, I've, uh, I don't wanna to get too deep into the professional consideration and knowing what you do here, because it's really difficult to know everything about everything and nor should we profess to do so, or anybody for that matter, because you're always learning. Uh, but you know, I've had a, a couple calls with some like clients, I can't speak, but a couple calls with some clients in the last week alone. And, and it's interesting to talk about what they've been advised from either the banker or in many cases, maybe a, a mortgage broker, no, no offense to them, but just doesn't really grasp these policies or understand the whole picture. And, and just by making a few tweaks and adjustments, we could increase someone's qualification dramatically. And, and in some circumstances, um, they were just given poor advice. So, so again, that's another reason why it's important to understand this stuff isn't just black and white. There's so many nuances behind it and there's so many different considerations when you're preparing your portfolio and you're looking and buying these investment properties. Yeah. So let's, uh, yeah, let's, let's get into what, uh, a lot of people want to know here, or at least a lot of questions that we get. So we talked a little bit about, okay, how do we qualify you? What's an offset? What's an ad back? What's a worksheet? Oh my God, my brain is starting to hurt now. What about the difference between like, buying a property that's a rental versus having other rental properties, where does the rental income come in there and how does that impact your overall application? Like why is, why is that different? Going back to our very first point about claiming rental income, right? If it's an existing rental property, that's one thing they're looking at. When you're buying a new rental property, there's no possible way to have that on your tax return. And you also don't know exactly how much you're going to rent that property for. So I'll talk about buying and then maybe you can jump in on, on existing properties, but buying an investment property or buying even a primary residence that has basement suite rental income or side suite, um, that's a prediction. It's a prediction of what you can get for rent. Uh, there are some banks that actually ask for rental agreements, which is not a realistic request in my opinion, because you don't own the property unless it's already tenanted. You don't own it. You can't show it. You're not going to find a tenant before completion. It's just not realistic. What most lenders will do is they'll allow us to do a market rents. So most people listening to this podcast probably know what an appraisal is. It confirms value of the home when you're purchasing or refinancing. Appraisers actually do market rents uh, reports as well for rent. So they will go and visit the home to do the appraisal and they will also have a report 
for how much that property could rent for and they use actual comparables um, off Craigslist and stuff like that and, and, and you know pro properties that they've seen and used prior. So that's a big one. That's how we typically can use rental income in a purchase is an appraiser's market rents report. If an appraiser says that this property will rent for 2600 bucks a month, most banks will accept that and they'll allow us to factor in 2600 bucks a month. You might end up renting it for 2800 or 2300 We don't know, but the bank is going to use what the appraiser said is a realistic number. Um, so that's a big one. One thing that would be important to consider in all of this is, so I, I know you covered this to a degree. Again, I'm, I'm repeating some of it, but maybe just shedding light on some of this as well as you, you did make the point to say that when you're buying a property, it's anticipated or expected rental income. When you own a property, it's, or, or let's say you have multiple properties for that matter. We have to clarify and show what we've claimed and so forth. Um, Derek, forgive me if I'm saying this a second time here, but uh, the anticipated rental income, did you touch on the fact that uh, with a rental income on a property uh, for projected rental income can actually be much greater than what a current property might hold? And that could be a part of the, the increase. Uh, if not, just to kind of re-educate or, or reshare this information with the listeners here, uh, often if you've owned a rental property for two or three years, and this is something we talk about a lot with the podcast, well, we can't dictate and clarify that specifically, you know, you're going to see uh, property values go up over an extended period of time. I mean, obviously over five or seven or 10 years, we're going to see values go up, but it's not a linear line. There's usually some bumps or peaks and valleys and things of that nature. When it comes to rental income, that's usually not the case. It's usually just a straight up diagonal. Rental rates go up pretty much every single year, depending on the city you live in. Uh, but if you live in BC, that's usually the case. Um, and so for that reason, if you're buying a rental property, there's also the added bonus, as Derek mentioned, that you're pro doing projected income. And the projected income will usually be higher than what you're currently renting your property out for. So if you had a two-bedroom condo and you're renting it in 2019 in Langley City, you might have rented it out for 16 or 1800 bucks. But in 2022, that's rented out for 24, 2500 bucks. So added bonuses from that perspective. I mean, obviously the numbers are there, but it makes a difference. It does make a difference. So something to consider from that perspective as well, and maybe just taking a different angle that people don't realize from, from that side. Um, let, I mean, let's talk a little bit about, um, you know, when we're buying a, a property, the, uh, the whole idea of having, you know, a single rental property um, versus having one that has more than one unit in the property as well and what that looks like. Um, to be clear, what I mean by that is uh, there's a, a couple of different ways that people call this in the industry. So we'll just kind of explain it and break it down. Ultimately, there's a difference between owning a, a, a single property or a single title that has, let's say, a house and a suite in it. So that would be one property, one mortgage, one title versus, for example, a, a, a triplex, which would have three separate units in the property or something of that nature, or, or let's say two condos, which is two properties. So uh, again, I think that there's a lot of people that have misunderstandings around how you use the rental income there and how that impacts you and, and how that impacts your overall qualifications. Often, it's to the advantage of the borrower to have a single property that has more than one uh, rental unit in it. As an example, I just mentioned, that's why we often see uh, people purchasing homes and adding in suites or having a second suite and renting up the top floor and the bottom floor because as le lenders have limitations on the amount of uh, properties that they're willing to lend on, there's no limitation to having, you know, say three properties that have two doors in it. So you can have two rentals in each house, right? So that would be an important consideration to talk about. Yeah. And from a qualification standpoint, I mean, typically if you have 
an upstairs and a downstairs in one home, you're going to produce more rental income than if it was just all one unit, right? So from qualification, the more rental income we can drive from that property, the easier it's going to be for you to qualify. It's also going to be easier for you on the next one and the next one because that property is producing so much income with one mortgage and one property tax payment and, you know, so on and so forth. So that's a huge consideration. I think back to what you were saying about if it's one unit, one property with multiple units inside, that's awesome. Where some people can see limitations is if you bought a fourplex, that's actually four separate titles, four PIDs, banks are going to look at that as four separate properties. Like they will. And, and a lot of banks will actually cap you. Certain banks will only do four properties for one person. Some banks will go up to 10, but that is going to eat away um, at your door limit. And, and that's where we see a lot of real estate investors start to uh, you have to get creative with financing. You have to you place yourself with the right lender um, because a lot of people will max themselves out once they own their fifth door with most institutions. Okay, number of rentals available. We're talking more about rental income, but it is an important consideration to keep that in mind. And and guys, listen, there, there isn't a, a lot of people get, oh, I can stop at four, five doors. I have to stop. That's not actually the case. I mean, if you have enough rental income and you can, you can as Derek mentioned, that's many lenders will stop. And, and actually to be clear, a lot lenders stop at four doors um but there's a five door there's six there's seven and there's some that go even higher than that but again as a general rule of thumb as derek mentioned four to five properties is key and so if you have like you said those multiple units that's pretty helpful from a rental income perspective right um you know talking a little bit about uh, uh, uh how rental income works is key and where that goes and we didn't i mean we touched on this but i'm gonna get back to the idea of the lender types and how that impacts everything you know, we've got banks, we've got credit unions, we have mortgage finance companies, we have alternative lenders, we have private lenders. There's a lot to cover in that little uh, uh, area or arena there, but I think we can make some general um, uh, statements when it comes to that. Uh, my experience has been such that the often the credit unions, at least used to be, less less now than they used to be, often use what we call that offset, as we touched on before. So there are certain circumstances where a credit union can be to your favor as far as potentially a rental uh, suite and in some cases, a second rental property. However, I'm going to almost counterbalance um, myself and suggest that that's actually been not so much the case in the last one to two years. And this is why guidelines are super important because they've now added a whole series of new different restrictions uh, in the past little bit here. We've talked about debt service ratios. You know, typically you can qualify up to a percentage of your income on that property, including the rental income, often 39%, sometimes 44%. Well, often we see lenders start to make restrictions around the debt ratios when they're using these offsets or they start to massively increase the interest rates and that works against you. And with this new stress test, we're finding that's working against you even more. So I guess where I'm going with that is, while credit unions used to be a fantastic opportunity, and once in a while they work out quite well in your favor, they're kind of hit and miss, undecided, mixed bag, so to speak. Any thoughts there on the credit union piece on your side? Yeah, I mean, one thing we've seen with some of the bigger credit unions is a lot of them are trying to go federal. Like they're basically trying to become a bank. They want to move across Canada, whereas typically the credit union is a very localized institution. It's like it's for a certain market, right? Like they're not across Canada. And when these credit unions start to go towards being federal, they have to adopt all the bank's policies. And a lot of times they lose their 
creativity and, and, their, and their flex on these programs. And, you know, like some of these institutions, these credit unions used to have just phenomenal rental programs and equity programs, but those all go away when you want to become a bank because you have to follow the regulation of the banks. Um, but just one thing that I've learned over the years is if it is a smaller localized credit union, they might be more reliant on rental income and it's because they understand that market. Right. Like if there's a credit union in greater Vancouver, they know that we have an unbelievable rental market with very low vacancy. Right. So there's not a ton of concern there about being reliant on rental income, whereas your banks, they're across Canada and they don't necessarily change their policies and programs dramatically based on different towns and cities. And you know what I mean? Like they try to make blanket policies that work for everybody so that it's not, you know, a constant case by case scenario. Um, and that's where we've seen some of the credit unions have excelled over the years. But again, some of these programs are being stripped away. Um, but that's where we you typically see why they're they're being a little bit more creative, and you know why they're, they'll stick their neck out and create a really good construction program. It's because they understand the market that they're in, and they're not in multiple provinces. Banks, credit unions. We did talk about a couple of other lending options. So we talked a little bit about um, mortgage finance companies, other, otherwise known as monoline lenders. Hey, let's be really honest here. We really like our monoline lender partners, and they're really popular choices for a lot of people. Um, examples of names of these companies would be First National, MCAP, RMG. There's many others out there. So if you're a monoline lender and you're listening to me here, some of our lender partners do, uh, don't hate us for not mentioning your company. In any case, you know, these guys really got capped the knees uh, back in 2016 when all of those rules and guidelines changed. It, it impacted their rental capabilities and business, the insurance costs and so forth. So uh, my feedback around these lenders is while sometimes you can make it work and make it fit in early on in the process, generally speaking, most of them don't have the favorable types of rental income programs that maybe a mid-level or lower level income earner, and not, not to discredit you, but if it was a mid-level or lower level in, uh, earner, may not be able to qualify with these lenders. So fantastic options, great products, great rates, things of that nature. They just don't typically have the rental solutions that we're looking for uh, later on in the process, but always worth exploring earlier on in the process as a potential solution. A little challenging these days. Anyways, we hope for their sake that they can get back in the market sometime soon. There is a, another market that we haven't touched on here, um, not private. We won't get into private. And by the way, those guys we were talking about are not private lenders. There is what we call alternative lending. Um, alternative lending has changed a lot since that those rules I just mentioned came in. Since that 2016, 2017, and the stress test 2018, it's alternative lending is massive. And you, we, I mean, sure, some people call it B lending. And a lot of people get confused on what's B lending, what's alternative lender, what's this lender, what's that? Like, I think the best way to explain it is let's just call it more creative bank. Uh, it's 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 a lot like the U.S. In the U.S., you would find one lender that would just have variations of their rates and options. In Canada, unfortunately, when when it doesn't fit in that bank box, you have to go to a different institution. That different institution is called an alternative bank. They got a bad rap. I don't know why. It doesn't make any sense for me. It's pay to play. You pay a little bit more in the interest rate and. These days, I mean, Derek, tell me if I'm wrong here, but I found that the rates are honestly sometimes more competitive than the banks, and they're always within like 10 basis points of each other. The only difference is you pay a fee. Yeah, you pay a fee. It's a stopgap. I have a client right now that qualifies for 800000 with the banks maxed out, and we can get her to about a million fifty with an alternative lender, and like that's the price point that she needs. Her rate is very similar to if she went with a bank, and she's paying a fee. She gets it, and she's taking that mortgage all day, and she's happy very very happy that that's an option for her so yes they're more flexible they're typically used for 
stop gaps, right? If credit's not quite there, if you're self-employed, you don't claim enough income. Some of these lenders have no cap on doors. You can own 3,000 properties. As long as you qualify, they'll give you the mortgage, right? So just overall more flex. In a typical market, you will pay more on the rate. We're in a strange rate environment right now where there's actually some cheaper alternative rates than there are bank rates. It's very odd. Um, but yeah, these can be great options before you shut the door on what you're trying to do, right? Like for us, it's we lay everything out on the table so people can make their decision. It's, it, it, you know, it's a flaw in us if we haven't explored every single option before a client shuts the door. 100% agree with that statement. And I think more and more and more people are understanding it. It's a cost of doing business. It often blows my mind, Derek, when we talk to a client who's willing to bid up 10, 20, 30, $40,000 more on a property, but they won't pay a $5,000 fee. Like it's, it's the cost of doing business business yeah. is no different like why would you look at the price of a house any different uh than the price of the mortgage you know what i mean if you can't get the money it's irrelevant uh, my prediction on that point there and we'll talk a little about why why people are using that from a lending perspective but my prediction is i think we're going to see way more of these uh of people being open to these types of uh properties especially our clients who are looking to buy a few more investment properties over the next few years uh than ever in the past as rates become more competitive and as people just generally speaking evaluate things from a different manner I, I, again when I talk to a lot of my U.S. counterparts, they cannot fathom why that bothers people to pay a fee. Um, I think it's just a Canadian environment, like a lot of things, right? People just have this mindset, like, guys, stop being worried about it. Same thing as self-employed people. Like, I, just like you mentioned, working, I know I'm getting off track here, but working with another guy right now, self-employed, and like he claims like $20,000 income, but we uh, we can use $100,000 of income with these lenders. And that's the difference between borrowing a hundred grand and borrowing four hundred or five hundred thousand bucks, right? So, uh, yeah. Anyways, long story short, good lenders to consider from a rental income standpoint because we got off track there. The difference is that they'll often use a higher offset or a higher add back or a more advantageous worksheet, and or they'll be more open to um, you know other types of considerations, other types of properties, and more doors. We talked about that. So, lots to consider. Um, let's just touch really quickly. I think this is like its own episode and I, I'm, I know we're going to talk about this in its own episode. We're just going to give you like a quick touch on something we ask, get asked a lot about right now, which is like Airbnb rental income or short-term and how that differs from long-term rental income. Derek, why don't you start and I'll jump into that. Banks don't use short-term Airbnb rental income currently anyways. Your conventional banks don't won't consider it. Uh, people call me all the time. They're like, I found a condo. It's going to bring in five grand a month normal rent is two grand. I'm like, yeah, it doesn't work. Like, and especially the, the real challenge that we're running into is a lot of these listings say nightly rentals, short-term rental, it's zoned for Airbnb. Most banks want to stand away from that because number one, they, they have a tough time finding consistency in that rental income. We just went through COVID when travel stopped and Airbnb shut off. There was very few people actually renting these properties. So banks have valid concerns as to why they don't want to use that rental income right now. Um, that's the biggest one. If you can find a property that you can get a qualification uh, based on long-term rent, things can change in the future. If you decide to Airbnb it, that's totally up to you. It could impact you on future financing because, again, the bank is not going to want to factor in that rental income when you show them that you made Airbnb. That is the biggest one. These properties can be uh, unbelievable though, financially. You can bring in double 
in regards to rental income, you can also use the property yourself. There's a ton of benefits. Uh, financing is currently challenging, and I do hope and think that it's going to change over time because this is becoming more and more common. More and more people want to be able to take advantage and, and use their vacation property, but also produce some income. So I'm hoping that there's a light at the end of the tunnel here. I, I've heard a lot of different rumors about lenders coming on board with more rental income and being open to Airbnbs. Of course, there are some workarounds. There are some solutions. Uh, we've talked a little bit about commercial lending and things of that nature that we can look at. Uh, I think it's just that, um, again, to your point right there, it's not um, the same as what you know people, again, just using $4,000 a month. When you might get five, you might get two, you might get three, right? It makes a lot of sense. Um, again, I want to be clear, it doesn't mean you can't finance an Airbnb property. That doesn't mean you can't use rental income. A lot of people get that confused. We're not saying that at all. It's just that the projected income is very different from the real income from a residential lending standpoint. Oh my God, I'm running out of breath here. That was like, um, like if you're a realtor, if you're listening to this right there, like your, your brain should be ready to blow up. It's a lot of information. If you're a client listening to this, uh, we just took you to class. We took you to school. You guys learned so much in a short amount of time. This is uh, yeah, there's a lot of information here. So, um, yeah, I mean, basically what we're getting to at the end of the day is, uh, you should probably call us because <laughs> we, we do this all day long and there's different policies around all these types of information and, um, yeah, rental income is, uh, is fun. Yeah. The last thing I'll throw out there is like, we do pre-approvals for people all the time to purchase a, a rental property. I mean, any property in general, these numbers all change, right? Like you might find something that's a little bit more expensive, but it's got an extra bedroom and it brings in more rent. That doesn't mean you don't qualify. You could qualify because it's an extra 300 bucks a month of rent, right? So these pre-approvals that are being issued, they're a baseline qualification, but we have to look at the numbers on that specific property because that, that qualification could change, right? Uh, we qualified a guy and his market rents came in way below what him and his realtor had expected. And that actually changed his approval pretty dramatically. So um, there's just so many variables when you're purchasing yeah. a property in general, let yeah. alone something with rental income. That's a great point about just rental income qualifications in pre-approvals, just like when you're buying a property and the taxes or strata fees could be different, rental income could vary the property type and so forth. That's why communication is massive, massive, massive in these situations. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening to our power session here today. As always, you've got the two partners here at Thrive Mortgage Co. We love the fact that you're listening to us and we want you to leave us a five-star review. Spotify, you can do it now iTunes, you can write a review. Um, even better, uh, if you want to send us a message and share this, please share this to someone else that you know that wants to learn more about real estate. Our goal is to help more families. We have a goal this year to help over a thousand families and uh, we'd love for you to help us. So either reach out yourself or introduce us to someone else and we'll continue to pop out this amazing content so that you can be more educated and feel more confident about your purchase in real estate. Thank you guys for listening. We'll talk to you soon.